Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. John, thank you so much for joining Chicago Capital. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I am going to let you sort of take it away. I think we'd all love to hear more about room delivery and what you guys have been working on. Sure. I guess it would help for how we got started. So for those who don't know, room delivery is basically an e-commerce platform specifically designed for the convenience store industry. I got into it almost by accident. I'd actually come off of another startup that I'd exited in 2014, flash forward a year, 2015. I, in a way, grew up in the convenience industry in that my dad's company was at one point in time a significant operator of convenience stores. Um, at one point in time, he had a couple hundred stores around the country. But in 2015, he, he'd sold most of his assets. He still had a handful of stores remaining in, in Texas. And uh, myself and my brother, uh, who was working at Palantir at the time, were trying to encourage him to get into the e-commerce space, which really no one in the convenience industry was doing at the time. Uh, there were a number of reasons for this. Initially, we sort of were looking for sort of an off-the-shelf solution that, that he could just plug into to easily sell all of the products in his stores. He operated some fairly larger format convenience stores, which are fairly typical outside of urban environments in the U.S. He had It was a, almost like a small grocery store with a full uh, restaurant but also sold all the normal convenience items, beer and tobacco being major categories. So the idea being that not just to sell the food service, which is what they really want to sell because of the high margins, but to sell everything in the store, right? Use the beer to, to leverage the other stuff. And there really weren't any platforms that would allow him to do this, let alone deliver it due to the nature of the age-restricted items and, and whatnot. So we actually built the first version of the software for his stores with the idea that if it worked, we could take it to market. So that's what we did. We're working with just his stores through 2015 into 2016. Starting in 2016, we started testing it with the first customers, if you will, uh, where we to continue to develop the platform. We did that primarily with independent single store operators in Texas and in the Midwest. And as we continued to grow the platform, we realized that there really was a hole in this 250 billion dollar industry these people just weren't selling anything online and no one was building software to allow them to do that you know we continued to push the company we went through 2017 sorry 2018 we felt that the software was well developed enough to really take it to market to go after some bigger players uh, so we went through an accelerator program a program called blue startups out of hawaii I, I did get to spend four months in in honolulu as part of that and then took it to market targeting uh, what we see to this day is still our, our target customer base, which are mid-sized regional chains of convenience stores. So chains of anywhere from 10 to several hundred stores. And that's where we pushed it. Flash forward to pandemic uh, this past year, the industry got a rude awakening that by not being in e-commerce, that when the lockdowns hit, that they uh, were in a bit of trouble. So we saw our store count go or or customer count go from eight chains prior to the pandemic to over 40 today. So we've quintupled our number of customers and store count even more than that over the past year. I'm curious about the nature of the convenience store industry. Why do you think there was a reluctance in the past to turn on that e-commerce lever or why wasn't DoorDash or Postmates going after this segment 
Well, you know, there's been, there were a lot of reasons why we couldn't find anything to work early on. One, like I said, you're talking about industry that's heavily reliant on age-restricted products. So the rules and regulations loosened up a lot over the last year that makes it um, easier for third parties to do this in more locations. Probably more than two times the number of states now allow third parties to deliver those types of items that didn't prior to the pandemic. You're also, though, talking about stores that have several thousand SKUs that are constantly changing prices. They change some of these stores update more once or twice a week, their, their pricing. They're very price sensitive businesses. So just maintaining the online lists, if you don't have any kind of integrations with their backend um, systems, it makes it very difficult to maintain those types of things. It's still to this day, the third parties don't really have tools. So if you were to go and look at a convenience store, it's on DoorDash, for example, or Uber Eats, they probably only have a couple hundred products listed because that's all they can really service. And then the, the cost structure was misaligned. Again, these businesses were built for the restaurant industry. So the, the margins on convenience items are half or sometimes less depending on the category. So they, they, there's no way for them to build into these apps without massively increasing the pricing. You know, if you have a handful of products that are priced high and they don't have the products that you mainly want, you know, these solutions just weren't weren't a really good fit. And, and a lot's changed in the last year, not just in terms of um, the laws, but also other things that some of these, DoorDash in particular, has made a big push for more like white label fulfillment. And the cost structures have changed to allow for other types of industries outside the restaurant industries to do these types of deliveries more effectively. So it's really only in the last year that the third parties have really even become viable. And even then, there's still there's still some some other disadvantages of going directly through their platform without having your own. So we, for example, actually do partner with DoorDash on the fulfillment side, but we're still providing all of the tech infrastructure for these chains to manage their own e-commerce systems and just utilizing the third-party fulfillment on the back end. And are some of the benefits of, you know, using a service like Vroom, do they have a better sort of control and relationship with their customers over time? Yeah, I mean, similar to e-commerce, you know, going directly through any retailer versus going through Amazon, for example. You know, you control the customer flow, you control the payment, you control the access to the data, very importantly as well. So, you know, you you have a lot more control over you know, who's doing what with it. You're, you're starting to see some of these third parties actually become retailers. DoorDash, for example, while they have this these great fulfillments on one end of the spectrum, on the other end of the spectrum, unbeknownst to a lot of people still, they've actually copied the sort of micro-fulfillment center that, that GoPuff, you know, really pushed forward in the last couple of years, where they actually are the retailer as well on their own platform. So if you're on DoorDash's platform, you're now competing with DoorDash, the retailer. So by by owning your own e-commerce channel, you have control over all of those elements. You mentioned a lot's changed in the last year. And obviously, obviously e-commerce adoption is something I think everyone's seen that chart. As you mentioned, you know, you've grown quite a bit in the last year. I'm curious about your sort of thoughts as we emerge from the pandemic. Is delivery from convenience store, is this a habit that you think is really embedded in the consumer behavior today? And do you think it will remain that way moving forward? Well, GoPub just raised another $2 billion in the last year. So some people seem to think so. But uh yeah, I mean, if you look at all the trends, you know, I look at convenience delivery as a subset of grocery, right? And if you look what's happened with grocery, the numbers that really stand out are 
in you know 2017, Nielsen predicted that online grocery would hit $100 billion by 2025. Just before the pandemic, so February of last year, they revised that. So even without the pandemic, they revised that number up to 143 billion. So you're talking about a 43% increase over that same period of time in just two years. But late pandemic, it was in like September, they released another report. They now think that number by 2025 will be 250 billion. So $150 billion over the original estimate from just 2017. In terms of real data, you know, if you look at what the on-demand grocery segment has done. So if you ignore Amazon and shipping and all of that, you just look at ordering online at Kroger or or a convenience store or wherever and either picking it up or, or having it delivered to your home. Um, just before the pandemic, it was about 1.2 billion a month. It's now today 7.2 billion. So, you know, it just because the lockdowns have gone away and stuff, pe- the, these consumers are have stuck. And all of the data suggests that this is the way a lot of people want to shop now. You've mentioned a few competitors, or I would think of them as competitors. I think, you know, when I think of DoorDash, I would see them as a direct competitor to you. But you guys do partner, as you mentioned. So I'm just curious how you view the competitive landscape today and where you guys really truly see your differentiation between the different sort of third-party delivery companies and other software solutions for small businesses. Well, we're different in that we're B2B. You know, we're not a marketplace. So we're not out trying to build a two-sided network here. We're basically selling to chains of convenience stores that manage and operate their own e-commerce platforms. So from the consumer's perspective, sure, you could probably look at DoorDash or GoPuff or Amazon Prime now as a as competing businesses for where to get things delivered from a convenience store or from a small market. But from our perspective, as a company, they're all competing with the traditional brick and mortar retailers. What we're doing is basically going to the traditional brick and mortar retailers and say, hey, we can provide you with a level of e-commerce sophistication equivalent to these big you know, Silicon Valley companies, and we can plug you in to market. So a lot of these guys, for example, have their own proprietary apps. They've got their own consumers. They're trying to drive them through their own e-com channels. And, and so that's really what we're we're selling. And so from a business standpoint, the rise of these delivery-only e-commerce players is actually beneficial to us going out to the brick-and-mortar retailers and being like, you need to be offering this level of service to your customers as well. Yeah, it almost in a sense, trying to start this business 10 years ago would have been a much more challenging time to do so, right? Yeah. Well, Instacart wasn't the first to try to do what they've done. There were companies trying to do that you know, back in more than 10 years ago, You know, back when the original tech bubble and just the infrastructure wasn't there the you know the the uh the mobile phones you know the smartphones weren't a thing people just weren't used to buying that types of type of stuff online so a little bit is luck you know doing it having the right idea but also having it at the right time and so, and so sometimes too soon is actually as you pointed out can be can be a bad thing and you mentioned you're not a marketplace, you are more of a B2B SaaS solution. I'm curious about the revenue model. So I, I would assume there's no sort of take rate that you're, you're, you're charging in the same way that like a DoorDash or a Grubhub does, but just curious about your revenue model. Yeah, it, it's actually, we, we've actually taken a slightly different approach. A lot of VCs have pushed back against our revenue model. I think the last year in particular and everything we've done is proven our model right. We actually do take a percentage of sales. Uh, we do not charge fixed SaaS fees, even though we are providing a very SaaS-like product. The reasons for that, and I, I do think, still think it's the correct model. While I say that convenience is a subset of grocery, they're still very different businesses. They're much smaller stores, obviously. 
the average basket is smaller. The number of items people are purchasing is, is lower. The, the amount of time it takes someone to go and pick those items is, you know, a few minutes, not 15 minutes, not, not half an hour. So what that means is that the, the pickup segment is, is much lower. There's not a lot of time-saving element for a consumer to buy some stuff online and, and go to the store and pick it up. If they could walk into the store and get a Coke and a pack of cigarettes at the same amount of time, or it could even take longer to, to place your order online first. There are exceptions, and I won't bore you with all details unless you want to know them, Paul, but there are instances where we see pickup work, but it's much more heavily reliant on, on delivery for success. So what we see is that there's a huge difference between a convenience store that's delivering and they're delivering all the products in the store, beer, cigarettes, food, you know, large format stores. And then maybe if you had like an urban store, for example, that had no food, uh, that had limited ability to do deliveries, they're going to get very few orders. But these chains, as I said, because you're providing this e-com platform to all the stores, if you're charging a fixed monthly fee per, per store, you're going to be undercharging those stores that are doing a ton of volume, but you're going to be on the flip side, overcharging massively for stores maybe do limited volume. So by doing it as a percentage of transactional sales, we allow the stores to put their entire network online and the incentives work out for, for all the parties. So I've had a number of VCs, in fact, most of them that I've talked to in the past that did not like that, but I was not willing to change it from first someone else's perspective and then not based on what we think is the correct way to run the uh, the revenue model for the company. How early into the product development did you realize that this was the right revenue model? Was there any sort of trial and error that you had to go through? I'm, I'm just fascinated by that sort of discovery process. We've never charged the monthly fee. It's always been something we've talked about. And interestingly, we, we do have some channel sales partners that do charge some monthly fees. So it's clear that some stores are willing to pay for it. If it's low enough, I don't think it'll scare stores off the platform. But I look at some competitors charging. You know, I know that one of the biggest in the in the restaurant space was quoting one of the chains we were we we ended up signing like seventy five dollars a month per store per location. I mean, that was a huge commitment for them, and was part of the reason why they didn't they didn't sign that deal with the other company. You know, so there probably is a number on a per store basis that you could go with that's not going to scare them off. What we did, so we never really experimented personally with with the fixed rates, but what we did do is we did push our, our variable rates up over time. So we, we do charge more um, on a trans transactional basis now than we did, you know, a few years ago. And we did finally get to the point where it's like people were pushing back enough. It's like, okay, I think I think we've hit the as high as we're willing to go for right now. What has been your strategy for acquiring new stores, for acquiring new customers? And I guess that... Second part of the question is, where are you guys really live right now and what markets? Uh, so we have over 40 chains that are signed. As you've, as I've mentioned, a lot have signed in the last year, so not all are live. Cumulatively, that's like over 30 states. So I won't list them all for you. But our first state, weirdly, that we had a big presence in that we cover a lot of the state and have a lot of the big chains is Michigan. And there's no reason for that other than there becomes a bit of a FOMO when you enter a new area and people see their competitors doing it, right? So... Um, you know, we've got a few hotspots around the company, around the country, rather, where people are seeing their neighbors do it. We have some big brands. We work with a division of 7-Eleven, 7-Eleven Hawaii, which is 66 7-Elevens out there. Um, we have a pretty big chain in the Midwest that should be coming online the next month or two. But we're not regionally specific. You know, we're in every region of the country right now. But it, uh, it sounds like, at least in the early goings, your, your customer concentration has been pure Michigan. 
I just had to throw that. Oh, <laughs> Pure Michigan. Uh, yeah, early on, we were nearly Pure Michigan. They do a good job over there. I had to give that commercial a shout yeah. out. I just had to. <laughs> Curious about your, you've touched on this, but the product, you know, the suite of offerings that Vroom delivers to, you know, store managers. Curious about if I am a store manager of one of these convenience stores, how does Vroom really improve my life and my business? What are all the use cases and the functionalities of the product? Well, if you're a man- manager that's incentivized by by increasing sales, and you're probably happy if, if if this is just another task that the manager is making you do, you probably don't like my product. But, but um no, I mean we've made it really, really simple for for management. I mean the whole the whole stack really. I mean we're the convenience industry is, is really its own tech stack. The back end software that manages the accounting and the transactions is is unique to this industry. The point of sale systems are fairly unique to this industry. The loyalty programs there's some bleed over from the restaurant space, but it's fairly unique. You know, so what we've done is we've because we're very industry focused. We've really focused our efforts on plugging into that stack. So we're partners with, you know, most of the we're, we're integrated rather with most of the back end systems so that the online menuing is accurate. So they don't need to maintain their menus and their pricing and all of that. We've integrated on the back end tools to even more sophisticated, even using DoorDash, for example, than the software DoorDash would have provided the store. So if you if an order comes in, you want to assign it to a DoorDash driver. We give them the ability to, if there's a pizza that needs to be made or the store is busy, they can't service it. We can actually delay that call out to DoorDash, for example. They can cancel it. They can reschedule it. You know, they can communicate with the drivers. We've been building with this industry for five years, so you know, any little instance or fringe case that's come up has come up, and we and we always are retooling to make sure that it's as little work on the store managers as, as possible. My intuition, and this could be completely wrong, but from a convenience store standpoint, you know, your average order value may be lower than it would be at a restaurant, but do you find that consumers are ordering more on a weekly basis? You know, they're using the product or they're using the convenience store delivery aspect more than perhaps they would for traditional takeout or delivery from restaurants. I'm not sure what the national average for restaurant orders is, but I do know that our average transaction, our platform is significantly larger than the average convenience in-store purchase. So the average in-store purchase, the latest data I saw was somewhere around $13 per transaction. Our average transactions are over 40. So it's significantly, it's significantly higher. And then in terms of customers coming back, one piece of data that's really interesting is what we looked at is based on the number of times someone ordered what the average basket is then. And so for people trying the system out for the first time, it's actually closer to like $30, which is still pretty high. But as you get to those customers that have ordered 100 or more times, that average transaction is like well over $50 now. So the customers over time tend to spend more per order once they become um, accustomed to and familiar with the system. What would you say, or do you guys have data on what are the biggest categories? I mean, is alcohol and you know tobacco, are those kind of the biggest ones? So across the platform, when you look at stores that have every category available, you know, to get accurate data, if they're missing a category, it would excuse the data. But when you look at those stores that do have everything, yes, alcohol and tobacco make up over half the basket. Um, that being said, it varies a lot retailer to retailer. You know, some of these retailers we work with are quite rural and, you know, they may be the only business that's delivering in, in a smaller town. You know, we work with one retailer in Michigan that has 55 stores. 
the absolute biggest town they're in is Muskegon, and it goes down from there. So, you know, you look at some of the smaller towns they're in, and they're doing in towns of, you know, maybe 10,000 people, up to 30 orders a day. And you look at those baskets, and they're much more diverse, much more heavy on the food service. They have full kitchens doing made-to-order pizza and stuff. A high percentage of baskets that contain grocery items, you know, and much lower as an overall basket when you look at uh, age-restricted items. And, you know, it's probably just because they're the only ones delivering any of those things in some of those towns. So they're the go-to for for all of those different categories. And that's where we find this service to be really interesting. If you go into more urban environments, yeah, it's they're basically booze delivery companies. What do you think is next for room delivery? Are there new features you think you'll be rolling out or just really focusing on expanding into new markets and delighting every convenience store customer that you bring on the platform? No, I mean, we're, 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 we're expanding our dev team as we speak. In terms of product focus, the real strengths we have, as I said, is our integration of those, the, this tech stack into the space. There's actually a, a format that called Connexus that all of the different systems talk to each other in, and it's unique to this space. No one else speaks this language. So if you, when you have some of these other larger restaurant companies trying to come in and trying to integrate, unless they're willing to speak Connexus, they're not going to be able to plug into all of these systems. So, you know, one of our huge advantages is that we're working on tight integrations with the, you know, dozen plus convenience-based loyalty companies. So when you order online, you get your fuel rewards points, for example. We've already been doing integrations with a lot of the backend systems providers, app providers, really tightening up our integration in the space is really going to build or has already built and continuing to build a very deep moat around our product that it would be very hard for a new entrant to come in and try to, to build those levels of systems. From a broader company perspective, you know, I do foresee at some point, you know, layering additional revenue opportunities. I think there's a lot of opportunities, particularly around working with some of the CPG brands, you know, being the primary e-commerce channel for the convenience industry. And not just the convenience channel as, as a sector, but also, as I was mentioning, segments of the market you know, rural Michigan, for example, again, where we're probably the only e-commerce provider of that where you can get a Coke delivered, you know, in Whitehall, Michigan. So, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, but from a business perspective, our focus is 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 still on sales and growing our network because the broader that network, the the, the better those opportunities will be. But because we're B2B, you know, the benefit too to our retailers would be you know, if there was some benefit from the CPGs that we're putting money into promoting projects, products, it's also a revenue opportunity for our partner chains as well, and that we would likely share some of that upside with them as well. You know, I spent I spent four years in in New York City, and so when I think of convenience store, you know, there's a corner bodega. Yeah. Uh, basically, I'm actually the kind of person that if this product was available, like I would use it to get things delivered from that corner bodega. Um, <laughs> I think that just speaks to my laziness, though, and I don't think I'm the average consumer. Yeah. But, uh, but I think, yeah, it's it's something that it really opens your eyes when you think about the rest of the country. There's all these areas where you really could be the only e-commerce play in an entire town or in an entire county. Yeah. Um, so I think that's just in, in, incredibly exciting. It's, it's um, well, yeah. Another thing the VCs have had a hard time wrapping their head around is what a convenience store is, because if you're from San Francisco or New York or Chicago. They all think exactly what you're what you're thinking. And then if I was to walk you into one of these stores um, that's 6,000 square feet that has a full kitchen, people are coming there for their food. They are, you know, some of these businesses have made, you know, a great name for the, their, their, they've almost become QSRs, some of the really big ones like Wawa or Casey's. Uh, 
it, it's completely different than that what most people think of when you when you live in a big city. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And I went to college in South Bend, Indiana, so we definitely have a few uh, few maybe potential or future or already customers of Room. As we're wrapping up, I'd love to hear future fundraising plans. How you guys are thinking about you know capital allocation through twenty twenty one. Yeah, I mean we're a little unique. We've we've not had we just we just finished a round actually that was actually led by our advisors. Two advisors. One is a, a guy named Terry Hanley. I mentioned Casey's. He was actually their former CEO. Another guy named Neil Stern, who used to be managing partner here in Chicago uh, of uh, McMillan Doolittle, which is a retail consulting firm. He was also the retail chair of Hyde Park Angels. He's now CEO of Good Food Holdings, which is a big holding of um, supermarkets on the West Coast. But, you know, outs- and then we had some follow on investments from some of our earlier investors from our um, accelerator. We also did the booth and VC thing. So technically, University of Chicago has got a piece of us now. But the um, the bulk of it was was through individuals, uh, through angels. So, you know, we've stayed, you know, off the sort of VC train, if you will, whether or not we decide to go that route in the future sort of to be determined. But at the moment, considering we just finished around, I'm hoping to not have to worry about that too soon. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I have to ask, I mean, the choice to go to Hawaii for uh, that accelerator you were a part of, you know, was that was that just a conscious choice? You know, you could have maybe done something in the Midwest, maybe done 1871, but you were like, I have been in Chicago for a while. I need to get out to Hawaii. This well, is, I need this. Unfortunately, it was during the summer, so I would have preferred it to be during the winter. But, you know, it was funny. We got accepted and they basically gave us less than a week to decide whether or not we wanted to go. And then we'd be off on a plane in two weeks. I, I was doing room full time at that point, but my brother, who's our CTO still, he had a full time job at Palantir. So, you know, I had to call up Jeff and be like, Jeff, want to go to Hawaii for four months? <laughs> he took a day and then said, all right, let's do it. He ended up leaving Palantir not long after. So I don't know Hawaii may have may have steered his decision making process more than mine, considering he had a full time job and I didn't outside of this. So. <laughs> That's unbelievable. I think if, yeah, if I was him, it'd be, yes, when's the flight? How fast can I get there? Yeah. Like I said, it did, it did only take him a day. So <laughs> It wasn't the brotherly love or, you know, sort of, uh, you know, come on, this is a family effort. It was Hawaii. <laughs> Let's do this. Yeah. Quit your job. Um, it actually, um, it actually is a good program though. Um, I, again, I don't know if you, anyone that's will be listening to this um, over the next few days, but they actually have do have applications open for another five days. So if anyone wanted to apply blue startups is uh, there are still taking applications for five more days and then maybe you'll be on a plane a week later. So I think, I think that's a pretty easy sell. I think we're going <laughs> to include that in the show notes and we directly should be responsible for a few applications. John, this has been great. You know, as we're finishing up, would love to hear your perspective on, you know, what it's like to, you know, be a founder in Chicago, how you found the experience of starting your business here and just your overall thoughts on the sort of community here. I can say that the Polsky Center and, and Booth in general have been very good. I kind of briefly alluded to them, but we went through the, they, they opened up the alumni track of the new venture challenge um, in 2019, which we placed second or third. I don't know. They paid us something. Whenever I've had the need to try to get in touch with someone, like I wanted to get in touch with the CEO of Foxtrot, they put me in touch with him, There's a few other people that are, that they've been instrumental at. So, you know, that resource has been, has been very good. 
I did find the sort of the seed funding search back when we were trying to do that a couple of years ago to be a little bit more challenging. That being said, I don't have a lot to compare it to. I've never tried to raise money outside of Chicago. So, you know, maybe would have run into some of the, the same same walls trying to convince a SFVC that convenience stores in Michigan are a good idea. But, you know, I think I don't, again, I don't know if that's unique to Chicago or just, just startups in general trying to, to pitch the seed funding idea. But, you know, like I said, we met, I met my advisors here. They were local. I've got some great resources here that I've basically just sort of found on my own, but it is, you know, it's definitely a place to, to start a business. There's a lot of things here and it's, you know, it's cheaper to operate a startup here than trying to run it out of apartment in SF or New York as well. So your capital goes a little bit farther as well. So another benefit of being in Chicago. Yeah, definitely, definitely a benefit. I can I can say that firsthand. John, thank you so much for joining us on Chicago Capital. If people want to follow Vroom, if they want to learn more about it, potentially, you know, become a customer, where can they go to, you know, learn more about Vroom? We've got our website, roomdelivery.com. Um, I doubt that there's any convenience stores listening to this, uh, but if you are, there is a tab on the homepage to uh, learn more from a sales perspective as well. You'd be surprised. We've got a pretty, uh, we've got a pretty diverse audience. I, I checked, we've got a, got a few listeners in Germany that always tune in. I'm, I'm so fascinated to see who those are, but uh, John, thank you so much for joining us on Chicago Capital. Can't wait to see what's next for Vroom. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.